0: It's Luke chapter 16, verse 16. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. So it's 10.50 in the Pew Bibles. This is God's word. The law and the prophets, this is Jesus speaking, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was lay, laid a beggar named Lazarus, and covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was in torment. Or sorry, the rich man was also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. Luke 16, and the parable of the rich man in hell. Interesting story, did not it? Um, let's recap firstly, though, and see what it is, what Jesus was talking about, that led him to this story. The last few weeks, um, you, if you are here, uh, we've heard from Sam and from Peter, and together they covered Jesus' parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son and the older brother, and then the shrewd manager. In all of these parables, Jesus used to tell things about the kingdom of God. We learned that God takes great joy in anyone who turns from their life of sin and enters into the kingdom. We learned that money can be more important to you than your relationship with Father in heaven. And that two people could live completely different styles of lives. One wasteful and the other productive. And yet both could misunderstand the love the Father has for them. And in last week, Jesus spelt out what it is that we should do with our money. Now you'll note, I'm sure, that in each of these parables, money or possessions plays a key role. In the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, money and livestock are used as metaphors for God's people. We are God's possessions and he values us greatly. In a reversal of focus then, the next two parables have Jesus warning us about our possessions and how they might block us from entering the kingdom of heaven. In other words, how our belongings might stop us from belonging to God. Make no mistake, yes, the younger brother in that famous story ended up with nothing. But had he not come back, had he stayed in the pigsty and died there, he would not have gone to a better place. But he did come home to his father. However, as we know, the older brother ends that story outside the party. What does he do next? We don't know. Does he come to his senses and say, Father, you're right. I labored all these years waiting for my reward, when in fact my reward was with me the whole time, in front of me? We don't know. We also don't know, at least at that point in the story, In what way does Jesus think we should behave in relation to possessions and money? Which is why Luke has put the parable that we looked at last week right where it was, as it tells us the answer to that question. And Peter Jordan went over for us last week, and he showed us that Jesus' teaching there is that we should be wise about how we spend it, give it thought and time. But in the end, the use of our money must be focused on Others. And if you're paying attention as well in the last two weeks, you'll also have noticed that all through these passages there is a very heavily implied warning. Implied but not stated. Money is dangerous and how we use it is indicative of where we are with God. And if you develop a love for money, then no matter what way that love is expressed, that path will lead you away from God. Today, however, Jesus takes this implied warning, and he makes it quite explicit. The Pharisees, who the Bible says loved money, reacted with a sneer towards all of this teaching. And no wonder. I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling a bit uncomfortable when I hear that my money should be spent on others. So if I, who know the Lord, would feel uncomfortable, how will those who dislike him feel and act when they are warned about their love for money? And that takes us right up to today. So let's look at it. Now this whole first section here uh, may seem out of place to you. In fact... Um, It looks like the writers of the NIV, which is the version of the Bible we have, don't know what to do with it because the paragraph heading in my Bible says Additional Teachings, which just goes to show that the paragraph headings at times are completely useless. Because calling this section Additional Teachings makes it sound like Luke just threw in some random bits and pieces for the crack, you know? There you go. There's a little bit of the Law and Prophets. and sure I'll throw in some divorce and a story about hell while I'm at it. But... All of these words here from Jesus. though so They are difficult to understand. And there I say, if Luke was around today writing his gospel and he sent it to a publisher, I have no doubt what, that an editor would just go through them. they would probably tell him, you can't just throw these seemingly unrelated things in here without explaining why they're here. But the thing is that what Jesus says here is, which in the first instance is aimed at the Pharisees, would have been abundantly clear to them. He's, re- like he's really going after them here. Uh, it's this, you know, he's slapping both cheeks. Let me show you what he's up to. So the first thing that he says is these words from Jesus, sorry, are the first thing are about the law and the prophets. Now this was a phrase that people used as a shorthand for what we would call the Old Testament. And so Jesus says that the message of the Old Testament was proclaimed until John. So something changed with the coming of John. That John, by the way, is John the Baptist. And John, of course, starts off his ministry by announcing the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Next, Jesus says that since then, that is since John, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. And your Bibles will add in there in verse 16 the phrase, And everyone is forcing his way into it. Meaning that there is an urgency on behalf of those who want to get in. It's not that they are being held back. It's that they are desperate to get in. They like what they hear and they want it. Next, Jesus goes and says that not a single stroke of the law will disappear. In other words, the law that is found in the Old Testament is still, in, still valid. It still has force, even as Jesus is speaking. Now, before I get into the bit about divorce... Hey, what's what's all that about? You can see why these are called additional teachings. Each point could stand on its own as a valid thing for us to know. It's true that Jesus is teaching something new. That John the Baptist was the start of this new age. It's true that people like what they're hearing. It's true that the Old Testament is still valid for us today. But what does it have to do with what he's just been teaching? Well, remember the context. The Pharisees are sneering at Jesus' teaching on money. These are the lads who prided themselves on being religious scholars who knew the word of God back to front, and hence they claimed they knew the laws of God. And finally, then they claimed to be experts on how to live a godly life. So when they sneer at Jesus' teaching about money, he reacts. This is pure hypocrisy on their behalf. Because Jesus is teaching good, fundamental truths about holy living, and these lads who claim to know God's laws are sneering at us. They're essentially saying, you know, who's this fella? We don't have to listen to him. We know what's right and wrong. So the first thing that Jesus is doing here is he's setting out the correct version of events. They know nothing. If they had been as clued in as they said they were, they would have known that the message of the Old Testament, they would have known the message of the Old Testament and seen the continuity between it and his message and John's message. But they didn't. If they had been as clued in as they imagined they are, they would have taken note that many people like what Jesus was saying and examined it. But they didn't. And now here's the crucial bit. This is the point that everything that follows on turns on. If they had known God's law as much as they claimed to do, then they would have seen that what Jesus was preaching was not in contradiction with the laws of God. And that is why he mentions the part here about divorce. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that, hey, you boys, you're getting all uppity and sneering when I claim to follow God, that to follow God means this and that and essentially accuse me of speaking rubbish about the law, but you don't even keep it yourself. Case in point, remarriage after divorce. Now let me say that divorce and remarriage are big topics for Christians, sensitive topics, and I'm not going to cover it today. But suffice to say, divorce and remarriage are not Jesus' main point here. He is using the topic to make a bigger point. And that said, Jesus here also is not making a blanket ban on remarriage. The point is that if you get divorced merely to marry someone else, um, so if you end the first marriage because you want to marry another, then presumably when you could have continued on with that first marriage, then you're committing adultery. And let me be clear here, I I want to be doubly clear just in case, some folks separate and sometime later they meet someone else and they want to get married again, so they decide to divorce their first spouse. Although you could say they are getting divorced so as to remarry. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is attacking here is the idea that you would end your current marriage so as to marry another. Now the reason that he says that, the reason that he uses this as a case against the Pharisees, is because they were teaching a view of divorce that was very, very loose. One could divorce their wife for a whole host of trivial things. Like One of the reasons I was reading was if you just saw someone else that you thought was better looking. The majority of these reasons, I mean, that was, you know, that was out there, but they had a heap of them that were just whimsical almost. And the majority of them seemed to be predicated on the man, you know, he just wanted someone else, it was different. Whereas the Old Testament teaching was a lot more restrictive. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 if you're interested. So the point is clear here. Jesus, he's given him a bit of a slap across the face. Oh, I'm not teaching the law, am I? Well, actually, I am, folks. But guess what? You lot who accuse me of not teaching the truth of God's word, that's what you're doing when you talk about divorce. And then he tells the story about the rich man. Now just in case you're missing it, Jesus is really spelling it out here for the Pharisees. The point of this parable is applicable to anyone who loves money, but the Pharisees have clearly missed it. Clearly missed, sorry, the not-so-subtle warnings that Jesus has been given in the parables about the older brother or the shrewd manager. Or maybe they haven't missed it so much as they thought, what are you saying here? That doesn't apply to us. Jesus has been continually teaching that money is dangerous. If you're not careful, it could lead you away from your Father in heaven. If you're not careful, you will miss out on spiritual riches. Well, it would appear that these appeals to watchfulness, didn't hit the mark. And so Jesus tells a story that lacks any ambiguity whatsoever. Love for money can lead you to hell. Now, <clears throat> before we talk about that parable, I want to say a couple of things, just very quickly, about hell. Because hell is clearly a big part of the story, and yet it's not the main point. And also, yet, any time that you mention hell, I know that people's antenna start to twitch. And uh, I feel I can't pass it by without saying a few things. All right? So I've got three things. Firstly, I want you to see that Jesus does not feel the need to qualify his teaching about hell. He freely uses it as a setting for his story. That would indicate that he believes in his existence, as does his listeners. Secondly... I know that many of you grew up in a church context, I've heard loads of stories, actually most of them since I've come to Kirkpatrick, you grew up in a church context where hell was used as a means to evoke a fear within you that would drive you to embracing God. Yeah? Some of you? Yeah. Now as I see it, most of you have then reacted somewhat negatively against this, and hence when you hear about hell, you're instantly wary. Now, all I say to you is that you're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bat water. I acknowledge what was done. Jesus, though, as he does here, does use hell on occasion to warn people about where their actions are taking them. But I suppose if I was to say anything about how we should then talk about hell, it appears to me that it is kind of at the end of the options. Like, as I've made the point, I think clearly, he's kind of angry at them. He's been trying to say this thing from, for a couple of chapters. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees has meant that after all reasonable attempts to warn them about money, they have not listened at all, at which point then Jesus talks about hell. I think the same pattern should be true of us. If you're talking about life and faith and God with someone, at some point it's legitimate to warn them about it. But we shouldn't start after. And then thirdly and lastly, one of the questions I've come across often in relation to hell is this. Whilst it does feel right that there should be punishment for sins, most people don't have a problem with that, it just doesn't seem fair to punish them forever. And in answer to this, I want you to listen to this verse from Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. It goes like this. Let the evildoer still do evil, And the righteous still do right. And it's at the very end of Revelation, and the writer he's saying this he's just looked into the future and he's encouraging his readers and his listeners to live now as they will then. And so he says that they should live good lives now in anticipation of the good lives they will live in the next life. And so the argument then is this if good people will continue to be good in heaven, then bad people will continue to be bad in hell. And that, in fact, is what you see in this parable. This rich man is doing. As I'll show you in a moment, he never says sorry. He continues to be condescending to Lazarus. And in fact, he never addresses God. The point is this. If people never turn to God, even in hell, then it's understandable why they should never be released. They keep sinning, and so they keep getting punished. That said... What does this parable talk about? Well, <clears throat> we first meet a rich man. His clothes of purple and linen suggest he is not just merely well-off, but very rich indeed. Every day this man lived a good life. Note that it says he did so every day. This means that on the Sabbath, his servants would have had to continue working to provide for his needs, a direct contravention of the laws about Sabbath. At his gate there was a poor man named Lazarus, a name which means God is my help. And Lazarus lay at the rich man's gate every day and begged. It's not stated, but presumably he lay there because he had some physical impediment which prevented him from walking about. Furthermore, his body was covered in sores. They could have been from some disease. They could also have been from the he scratching against the ground that his limited mobility forced upon him. Whatever the case, as well as being financially poor, he was in a bad physical state, which only compounded his suffering. Lazarus was also often very hungry, longing as he did for the scraps of food, scraps, mind you, that fell from the rich man's table again it's not stated explicitly but i think jesus mentions the dogs licking his sores at this point because not only does it give us a picture of his wretched state but dogs were fed with food that fell from the table they were allowed to have what lazarus wanted but didn't get so within the rich man's social rankings lazarus was below even the dogs i should point again that i should point out again sorry That, like his breaking of the Sabbath laws, care for the poor was mandated by the law of God as well. And yet these laws too the rich man broke. Time moves on and both men eventually die. The rich man is buried whereas it would appear Lazarus was not. But after dying, Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side. He's with the angels and the people of God, and I should point out as well that to be alongside someone is a, it's a symbol of honour. It's kind of like sitting at the head of the t- at the head table, and Jesus is making the point here that Lazarus has been greatly honoured, and of course Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, so Lazarus has actually been supremely honoured. He's now in a very good place. The rich man, however, is not. He. According to the words, he's been tormented. The fires of hell are causing him great anguish. While he's there, he looks up and he sees Abraham with Lazarus beside him. And he calls out to Abraham and he asks him to send Lazarus to him with a drop of water on his finger. Now, uh, you know, I don't know why he doesn't ask for like a jug of water or something, but whatever his reasoning for not asking for something more substantial. The irony of the situation appears to be lost on him. Because he asked Lazarus who he gave nothing to. And who lived daily at the entrance of his house. Yet he didn't even acknowledge him once. To now come and traverse the chasm between heaven and hell. And touch him in the moat. The rich man wants Lazarus to do something that is hard and intimate. And yet he himself failed to do things that were nowhere near as hard and nowhere near as intimate when he had the chance. The sheer blindness, the arrogance that was a hallmark of his earthly life is still a hallmark of his life now. I should also point out that he calls Lazarus by his name, meaning he knew full well who he was all along. I was really convicted once of being heartless, because there was this woman, Dunleary, where I used to live. And she was no, a known alcoholic. Uh, I'd actually seen her in court one time, being convicted for it. And I knew her name. Her name was Mary. And one time I was driving along the street in Dunleary with a friend of mine from somewhere else. And we both happened to see this woman stumble, fall on her backside, and then attempt to get back up. Right? And my reaction was, ah, there's Mary, floatered at 11 in the morning... My friend, however, who was driving, stopped the car, pulled over, got out, and helped her up. I did not feel too good in that moment. I felt really convicted. I wonder if the rich man knew something of Lazarus' story and used it as an excuse to prevent him from being kind to him. Sure, he's always going to be poor. What's the point in giving anything to him? Perhaps. I think rather he was just a snob he had no time for Lazarus because he was beneath him no as well he doesn't address Lazarus directly instead he asked Abraham to send him down send him mind you the sheer cheek of him this is essentially what Abraham uh, points out to next with his words he reminds the rich man of the way things were and how they are now things have changed Mr. Rich Man you don't seem to have caught up with the new reality. Besides, Abraham says, there are other rules at play now. There is simply no travel between heaven and hell. Even if I could grant your request, it wouldn't happen. Instantly, the rich man changes his approach. He doesn't acknowledge, he doesn't sorry, acknowledge the points that are being raised, mind you. He doesn't say sorry to Lazarus. And again, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to do something. This time, it's to warn his five brothers, who are clearly living the kind of life that would warrant them being needed warned. But Abraham replies rather sharpish: "They have Moses and the prophets; let them listen to them." It's here that Jesus's warning to the Pharisees become clear. They had the Bible; they knew what it said. And like the rich man who called Abraham his father, they claimed to be Jews, the very people of God. And yet they were ignoring God's commands, clear commands. And so the result for them would be equally clear. And then lastly, in what is surely a tip of the hat by Jesus to events that were to come, the rich man still doesn't concede the point And comes back at Abraham with a declaration that essentially God's words are not enough for his brothers. But but if only they were to see someone from the dead, then they would repent. But Abraham shuts this down too. If they don't listen to God's words, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Which of course, for the great majority of the Pharisees, is exactly what happens after Jesus himself rose from the dead. I was talking to uh, an atheist a guy once, he's actually, uh, well, well, it's too hard to explain, but basically he goes out on the preach, kind of like evangelizing for atheism. And he's got this big uh, show, which he puts on Facebook Live. But anyway, I was talking to him, and uh, he was wondering why people who pray, Christians particularly, who pray, why don't they go to hospitals and pray for everyone to get healed? And I asked him, well, if I did do that, and everyone at, walked out healthy would you believe then? And he said, because no one ever asked him that, he said, no. I said, how many times would I have to do it before you believed? And he said, maybe a thousand, ten thousand. So I'd have to clean out up to ten thousand hospitals to get this guy to believe. Some people, folks, will never believe, no matter what they see. Now before I end this rather heavy sermon, let me say this. Jesus is making clear to the Pharisees and anyone who's listening that hell is the destiny of those who love money more than God. But it wouldn't be fair to describe all this by saying he's just warning them by talking about hell. That misses the point. This story is a case study in someone missing the obvious. Repeatedly. The Bible does not just talk about hell. It talks about life led in the kingdom of God where we, amongst other things, spend our money on others, care for the poor, and are not heartless nor condescending to those not as financially well off as us. Jesus isn't just warning these guys with talk of flames and punishment. He's warning them with the reality that's all around them. If they don't respond to that, they have no excuse when they end up in hell it's not just the Bible that they're missing it's life and in this case it was outside his front door and he missed it I'm going to end by praying for us Father our our friends and family for our friends and family sorry Father who have demonstrated a greater love for money than for you. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you are the Lord's, and your ways and your kingdom will not be mocked. Give them the faith they need to follow you. For those of us who belong to you, I pray that we would all stretch ourselves with our giving and that we would be like Lazarus, able to trust you despite having nothing. Give us a measure of his faith, please, Father. Amen.